I started this journey when God called me a long time ago. I told him I would speak when I be- thought I'd become a preacher and answered that call. I made a pact with the Lord that I would be me no matter what. That when I would stand up here and I would speak his words, I would be transparent, real, sometimes raw. Maybe you've seen that sometimes when I speak. But I just remember when I was studying in school that, you know, these guest lecturers, these pastors that were well-polished, great speakers, great men of God, they would come and they just sound and made it, everything sound so perfect. And uh, not, I don't want to say fake because they were real, but it was just so perfect and great. And I was like, I'm, sometimes the motion was lost. Because it was just so well done. I guess that's the way I took it. And I just felt like whenever I would do it, I'm not the perfect tool. But I'm perfect because God's using me. It's not about me being, I'm just the mouthpiece. So I was like, as I speak, I always wanted to make sure I was transparent and raw. And that's how I can be real. So I would be lying today if I didn't tell you, just to give you a heads up, that if there's emotions today, I'm, I'm battling. I'm not going to lie about that. that. That would be against who I am. Um, it's been a while since I've been up here. So it's really cool because when God gave me the idea to speak about Jonah, the last time I talked on chapter 2, it was January 2017. It's been a while. But the book, when he had me start studying it, it's never, I've never been more connected with it than I am right this moment. We're going to study chapter 3 today, and chapter 3 is the climax of the story. The pivotal piece of, uh, of Jonah's journey, his reluctancy to be God's prophet. And I feel kind of like, as I was watching football yesterday, rivalry, rivalry week in college football, the climactic games, these big battles between these guys who play each other for their pride and competition, these schools that are against each other. It was climactic yesterday. There was some crazy, really good games. That's kind of how I feel today, this climax that's just been building and building. I wrote out my sermon today because normally I just bounce back and forth and I just share from my mind from what I've been prepping, but I didn't know if I would be as smooth, so I wrote it out. So if you see me reading today, uh, and I don't normally do that, I just wanted to make sure I gave the words that God gave to me. So I put them down on paper instead of straying like I normally do sometimes when I just go off. Um, But turn with Jonah chapter 3 with me. Um, I'm going to read a little introduction of just some thoughts from the last, uh, all the studying that I've been doing. One of the greatest lessons of Jonah's failure and forgiveness is that God continued to use the unusable, making them usable, and willingness to return to Him. Thankfully, we serve a God of second chances. Just like Jonah, we and many spiritual leaders have received a second chance to do what God has called us to do. Adam sinned in the Garden of of Eden, and God covered him. Moses murdered a man, yet God still called him. Elijah complained and whined and quit. And God recommissioned him. Peter, come on, we all know Peter. Peter denied Christ three times. 
And God used him as the pillar of the early church. And yet we see this story of the church. We see this as the church going through the ages. This has been the story. And we all receive a multitude of opportunities to return and serve God. And once God corrected our mirror prophet, if you remember, that's the name I kind of gave him. That's why I really feel more than ever connected with Jonah. He corrected the mirror prophet, put him back on his path. Set him right to do the the work God intended him to do. Jonah's third chapter reminds us that God's teaching is often learned just as much by the sower as well as the soil. Jonah is the tool in God's hand, his mouthpiece. But the soil is Nineveh. How many times have we heard the speaker up here say that? I know I've said it. Many, many times. Sometimes the teacher tends to learn more than the students. Or they hope the students learn as much as they did. That's usually the goal. Let me read a poem. I, didn't, I won't take credit for this. As I was looking on the internet and looking at commentaries and getting ideas and what other men thought, I came upon this little ditty of a poem. It's kind of cool. I wish I wrote the guy's name down. Um, but listen to this. It's just a little review type thing of the poem and his, uh, of the book in his mind. With Jonah swallowed nowhere in sight, his future is bleak, not looking so bright. Yet still in faith he lifts up his voice, and in God's and God, in God his Savior he does rejoice. And like a spud shot straight from a gun, he is restored to life back under the sun. So obeying, so obeying the Lord, he goes off to preach. A prophet he is, though smelly and bleached. And after a long travel and not looking so flash, Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ash. It's a little idea of what the book is about. So let's read Jonah chapter 3. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey beneath, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, just to go into it. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called for a fast, and they put sackcloth on, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from the fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, He then turned, that they had turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did it not. 
If you're following along your note sheet, we're going to go right to point one. God's forgiveness has no limits. We see that in the first few verses of Jonah. Verse one, I mean Jonah, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time. Why the second time? If you remember, I mean, I didn't get to tell you all to go back and listen to some of the previous sermons since it's been a while, but Jonah ran. If you remember, he ran away from the call that God gave to him when God told him in chapter 1 to go to Nineveh and preach to it. Well, when he did that, that riled up anger that Jonah had stored. He didn't want Nineveh to repent. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't like them. But he knew if he carried that message... God could save them and was going to. Jonah ran. Jonah ran away. I called him a deserter before. That's what he was. He was given a mission and he deserted it. He ran away and what happened because of that? He had great literal storms in his life. To the point where once the men on the boat, if you remember that, found out that he was the cause of the great distress amongst the seas, they threw him overboard. But what happened then? You remember, I, I said, I always understood the book to mean the, the fish. The great whale was the peril. No, the great the whale was the salvation that God supplied in Jonah's life to save him. He would have died in the water when he went overboard. Jonah spent that time in the whale for a reason. And we see that once he was spit up back on the shore, don't know exactly where, but he was back on the shore And just like those men I talked about before, God recalled Jonah yet again to go. Was the mission changed? No. What was changed was Jonah. Jonah was ready to hear it this time. Because his time in the fish prepped him for it. His trials and tribulations on the sea prepared his heart to hear it this time. That's why. That was his, as we call it in today's world, or our terminology, possibly his sanctification being worked out, his prepping, his planning, his molding. He just spent it literally in the belly of a fish so he could just reflect on himself and the decisions that he had made, what brought him to it. The same mission, like I said, God did not remove the call from Jonah to go to Nineveh. He just got him ready to hear it. Verse 2, Arise to Nineveh and go to the great city. Preach the word unto thee that I give thee to be, bid to bid thee. Those are different words. <laughs> Gracious is what God was doing. Graciousness, giving him that second chance that he gives to us oftentimes. God again commissioned Jonah, or Jonah to go to Nineveh. The only prophet to actually be sent to a foreign land to bring the message of repentance. Maybe you remember me saying that from a previous message. It was the only prophet that was ever commissioned to go to a foreign land to give the message of hope. The words that came from Jonah's mouth will not be his own. They will be words God put there. Because these people repented of their sins and they will be saved. Nineveh is a great city. It's an Assyrian nation. The Assyrians were wicked people, pagan. God called the city a great city. We read those in God's Word. He called it a great city. Over 600,000 souls in it. Notice I didn't say enemies. We're all enemies. 
I think if we see them the way God sees them, the same way that He sees us. Souls to be saved. A field to be harvested. Fruit. Maybe we'll think differently. See, I think that's what God was doing in Jonah. Like I said, Jonah, that mission when God called him riled up some hatred that Jonah had. Some anger from previous experiences with this Assyrian nation. Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to do it. He wasn't ready. Some of the words that I might say or some of the things that I read, they called him the reluctant prophet. Some of the other men that I've read some of their, their writings on this, that was a nickname they gave him, the reluctant prophet. I call him the mirror prophet. What's that say about me? What's that say about us? Like I said before, I mean, I'm struggling just standing here today. It's God's victory. This is We're talking about God's victory. It's not about the mouthpiece. It's about God. We've been saying this, I think, the last four or five weeks I've been here. It's not about us. If it was about me, I wouldn't be standing here. I would have quit. Probably would have just struggled just like the other men that I read about. Elijah complaining. He quit. God recommissioned him. In my flesh, I would have. This is just too much. There's no reason. Well, the reason is the calling. The reason is the salvation of Nineveh. But Jonah needed to be prepared. He softened Jonah's anger towards the people of the, or the Ninevites by having him see the truth of himself. That's what he was doing while he was sitting in the belly of the fish. He was... I don't know, we do it oftentimes. We sit and we reflect. We sometimes need a quiet place just to go and remove all the distractions of the world and think about what's really going on. I think Jonah really really finally got the point. Because the message didn't say change. The messenger changed. Not exactly. It's still the same guy, but he's different now. His heart has been softened. Verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was... I'm sorry, yeah. Sorry, I think I already read that. It was a three days journey. Let me say that point. Give you a little bit of a background of the, the city. A metropolitan city of the size of Nineveh was 60 miles around. It did take three days just to walk around the whole entire city. That's the size of this great nation, the city of this great nation. It was that big. But Jonah learned his lesson. He went. He obeys God this time, goes to Nineveh, and Jonah did exactly the word of the Lord commanded him to do. He went in and he preached. Can you imagine how long it took him to walk through that city? And it took him three days just to get around it. It took him one day's journey just to get into the middle of the city. There's 600,000 souls. How's this message going to get around? He's not going to pull up his phone and start sending it to his Facebook people, right? He's going to go grab a crowd anywhere he can go. The Assyrians had no trouble understanding the message because they were so quick to respond. We read that. He tells them, 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. They had a short time to repent. Their city was going to be totally destroyed. Jonah probably wandered around, like I said, giving 
Anywhere he could grab a crowd, he was giving this message. This message passed around like wildfire, right through the city. Eventually it gets to the king. But the thing I want you to take away from this point is that there was no other threat to the Ninevites at this time. There's not some other army down the road in a neighboring country like the Babylonians. I don't even know if that's correct. I'm just giving you an example. Like There was no other threat out there. There was no other nation threatening these guys at this time recorded. The only threat was the message that Jonah was carrying. And as soon as he gave that message, they responded right away. God was at work long before Jonah ever got there. That's what I want you to grab from this. God was already preparing the Ninevites, but he was at work long before Jonah ever got there. But he was also at work in Jonah long before Jonah ever got there. You see the correlation? Verse 5, So the, the people of, the Nineveh, of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed and fast. They put sackcloth on, from the greatest to the, weak, to the least, from the king to the lowest, to the poorest. This was a massive repentance. We, didn't, we haven't seen one like that. 600,000 souls. doesn't say nobody answered it. What I take from this, from what I gathered, everybody repented. I mean, my history is not the greatest, but I don't recall any other time in Scripture that this massive amount of people repented at one time. This was a mass repentance. A miraculous work that only God could do. Not Jonah. These pagan people, this pagan city responded to his reluctant prophet. To a weak mouthpiece. This huge city. Just boom. Showing the power of God in spite of the weakness of his servant. Amen? Can I say that again? This shows the power of God despite his weakness of his servants. Amen? I mean, that's the only reason why I can stand here today. That's the only reason why. It's the only reason why when we walk out of this building, we can do God's call on each and every one of your lives. Because I'm holding back the weakness of my flesh right now. Only God's strength can can do that. The power He's giving me. That's it. Because it's not about me. Jonah's preaching was accepted. They all believed Jonah's message from the king to the poorest person in the community. There was a massive repentance, like I said. They showed the seriousness of their repentance by their actions. Sackcloth. What's that? That is actually the cloth that, from what I understand, is what they put in around the dead body when they bury him. When they lay him in the grave. That's the cloth. Like a sack of potato. Like a burlap bag. That's what pops in my mind. They wrap themselves in burial clothes. And ash, well, that's pretty much obvious. From ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that's what they were representing. Just paint the picture. They're giving themselves a funeral. This is a funeral procession. 
I mean, wow, that's pretty serious stuff. They're, they're setting up the stage for a procession of a funeral. Now, now, I'm not talking the limousines and the black things, the flags when the cars go through the city, but that's kind of the idea. Minus the cars, of course. But that's the idea. They, they, the show was that they're dying to self. And God sees it. The whole city repented. To fill in the blanks, if you didn't catch that already, God's forgiveness has no limits. That's what we see in the first five verses. God giving Jonah a second chance to carry out his mission is an example of his forgiveness having no bounds. God's patience with Jonah and his persistence for Jonah to deliver the message to the city of Nineveh shows his forgiveness knows no bounds. 600,000 souls were saved just like that. The lay of the land power-wise changed just like that. A great pagan nation, gone. Babylon didn't take them out. The Medes and Persians didn't take them out. God took them out. He converted them. Boom. Just like that. We need to be praying for that. Now, <laughs> just like that. I'd love to see Iran go away, but Bill would disagree. I mean, they have a, a they have a role to play later, but that would be great. <laughs> God knows best. <laughs> Point two: God's call has no limits. Again, if you're jotting down, God's call has no limits. That's what we're going to see in the next few verses. Verse six: For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid down his robe, and covered himself in sackcloth and ash. King pops up. The garment he removes is a sign of his great power and wealth. And he puts on the clothing of a dead man. That's what he's doing. If that isn't a show of humility, I don't know what else I can think of. Especially back then when they had, you know, they didn't have the technology we had, but that robe, everybody wanted that robe. That robe was probably sweet. It was a sign of his power. It was a sign of his prestige. And he dropped it. And he put on the robe of a dead man. That's what he was representing. He was representing the change in his heart. He exchanged a royal rose for a sackcloth and ashes. Reports of Jonah's miraculous fish experience. Like, let's not be stupid. They, it probably got around. Like It did happen. This is a, a seaport city. They're near the sea. These are seafaring people. They, they know sailors. Some of their sailors probably knew other sailors. The story got around. It preceded Jonah. And not only did it precede Jonah, there was, as I alluded to in that poem, the writer of the poem alluded to, there was an actual change in Jonah's appearance. Most likely, a lot of the scholars think the stomach acid of the whale bleached his hair and skin. So Jonah's appearance was changed. That's why the one wording used the word bleach. Jonah's face and hair was probably changed. Validating that experience. So they believed him that way. The king set the example for everybody else. As soon as he heard it, he popped up, discarded the robe. 
He humbled himself before God. He covered himself in ashes and sackcloth, which was a sign of, like I said, great sorrow and mourning. That's what he was showing everybody. I don't think he was feeling sorry for himself, but he was feeling sorry against what he knew, knew that he was guilty. That's what he was representing. Great humility, sorrow. He humbled himself. He put himself to the depths of a, a dead man. That's, what, that's where we're at. Side note, I found this kind of interesting as I was studying. It was per, a Persian custom to use animals in mourning ceremonies. When they were mourning, like I said, the procession, um, instead of like limousines and hearses, they had animals that actually pulled the, the carts that carried the, the dead person, um, the burial. So they, they did have processions, like they just used horse-drawn carts. Um, and they even decked out the animals in this sackcloth. Uh, some people said it was like black leather to represent death. So I thought that was kind of cool. Verse seven. And he caused it to be, he caused it to be. A, a, I'm sorry. And he proclaimed it to be and published it through Nineveh. That neither neither man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything, not even water. So he calls for a great fast. That's what the king does. He calls for a fast. And this fast was something that I know mean, they fast before. But this was a total fast. Not even water. And they didn't even feed the animals. Again, striving to show the depths of the humility of the heart of the people. Animals, they were possessions. They were... Um, sorry, I lost my place. But they're creatures. They use them for pleasure and tools. So having animals uh, fast, that's kind of dangerous. Um, but this was a total, total fast. Um, they didn't allow them to even drink. The whole point of the fast was it was total affliction to all the people. That's what they were representing. Total affliction. It was to prepare their minds and their hearts to be lowered to ultimate humility. The fasting was used by heathens as well as Jews. In some cases particularly the Egyptians. That's probably where the Syrians got this total fast idea. Um, they might have seen the Egyptians use it. But it wasn't done much. But fasting was done. But not this no food, no water, even to the animals. This was a newer thing. They did believe the message Jonah brought to them. And they repented. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and, carry, and cry mightily unto God. Yet them turn every one from their evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Let no man, no beast, or I'm sorry, but let man and beast be covered. So like I said, they covered the animals as well. They didn't do the black leather, they actually did the sackcloth. Again, representing death. This order wasn't to be taken lightly. It was great seriousness and mourning and humility. Another side note, as this day, oh, I already said that, I'm sorry. Put the note here. I got ahead a little bit. But the whole point was that burial procession that they were doing. That was the side note. I just shared it earlier. Um, let every man move from his evil ways. Look, so people, here's what we need to understand. 
as I was trying to lay out before, there's this big burial, basically, they were lowering themselves to death, okay? They even lowered themselves, the king lowered himself, they even lowered their animals to ultimate humility. But, this humility, this wasn't going to please God if he didn't actually know they were going to change their ways. Only God knows their hearts. They weren't just showing humility. They were showing the interchange in their heart. We're going to see they, they, they changed their ways. That's the point. Um, these actions could just stay actions if they didn't back it up. But this great city, they did change. They changed from what they were doing. That's what we see in this verse. They changed from the violence of their hands. Their violent seizing and oppression of other nations, the robberies and preying upon weaker people, murders. That's what got them their name. This great city of destruction. They would wipe out other people groups. Done. Just like that. There's no other record saying that, oh, maybe they just went and pillaged the little villages now. No, it's done. They didn't do it again. They were a changed people. They put an end to it. Not only did they repent, they changed their lifestyle. They became new creatures. Their old lifestyle is gone. Sound familiar? That's what happened to us, each and every one of us. That's what we did. We become new creatures. That's why they buried themselves. They carried out a death ceremony of them, their old. They literally put off the old as much as they could. That's what they were attempting to do. They, called, they cried mightily to God. That shows the sincerity of their prayers. Jewish writers interpret this as their making of their restitution. That's what this act of this great mourning burial procession type thing was. They were paying restitution. Obviously not actual monies, but that's what they were doing. It was like, that's kind of what the, the men thought back then. This was their restitution. From their plunder and violence, this was genuine fruit of their repentance. Some understand this is not as the direction of the king. So, yes, we see that he gave this proclamation, but some people also think, that it wasn't what they should do, but actually a narrative of what they did do. That's kind of some of what the, the writers and people were saying. Is, yeah, he told them all to do it, but it was, they didn't do it because he said to do it. It happened. Like It wasn't just an order. Like They really all... And that's what, that's what the writers are trying to basically say. This wasn't the order of a king. This was God working in everyone's heart in the entire city. 600,000 people were changed. Not because of the decree of the king. Not to follow his example. They just all did it. Yes, he said it, but they were all do it anyways. Does that make sense? That's kind of how I understand what those people were saying. This wasn't a king, a king, small k, the king prompted this change. Not the order and decree of man's king. This was the heart change from the king. That's what preceded this. And like I said, I skipped ahead, but they had, and it's really cool, the wild thing in my mind is they really had a barrier procession for their old self. 
All this whole thing was to do, was actually to do what God called all of us to do. Put off the old and put on a new. And that's what they were doing. When I read these ten verses, you just read the story and I'm like, okay, they put something on and they put ash on their head, okay. But what that really represented was they were dying to self. Maybe we should do that a little more sometimes. And not walk so much in the flesh. Die to self. Verse 9, Who can tell if God will turn and repent or turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? That's a question the king had. But what I say is, these words, they show more, the question shows more of a statement of His true humility. The acceptance for either one. He was hoping that God was going to relent the destruction, but he was willing to accept it either way. So in a way, that question is not really a question. It's a statement of his ultimate humility. Yeah, I hope God turns from his anger. That's why we did what we did. We did what we did because we truly are changed. But if God doesn't return and relent, we still deserve it. That's really cool. God's call has no limits. We see that through verses 6 through 9. Do you think the response of the people in Nineveh surprised God? No. The calling of Jonah, the choice of Nineveh, surprised Jonah. That's what we saw in the early. It stirred up his anger. Jonah wasn't happy with the choice of Nineveh because he knew God would have compassion. See, he called called Jonah to go and tell him that they were going to be destroyed. But Jonah knew that there was this chance. I don't think he would call it a chance. That's why he didn't want to take the message. He knew that people were going to repent. Or that they could. That God could do that mighty work if he really wanted to do it. That's why Jonah was struggling with it. That caught Jonah by surprise. He knew he would have compassion. Jonah knew God's call had no bounds. We sing songs like, God can move the mountain. Right? But this actually happened. It's not a natural mountain. 600,000 souls were changed. It's incredible. We We say these things. We give the lip service. We serve a wonderful and powerful God. But does our lives actually show that we really believe it? That's what the Ninevites were doing. Man, just like that, they dropped everything. The king stands up and drops his robe. I don't want to give you any more of that sight. <laughs> but that was pretty fast. The Holy Spirit was working. We need to be praying for that kind of work to happen here. God knew the condition of the hearts of the people in Nineveh, just like He knew the condition of Jonah's heart when He called him. That didn't surprise God. God knew Jonah needed some tending. He knew he needed some softening. He had to take that metal thing and roll it over the meat tenderizer. That's what he did with Jonah when he put him in the belly of the whale. He was tenderizing him. He was softening him up. The mission was just as much about Jonah's sanctification as it was Nineveh's salvation. Really cool that we have a God that can work like that. 
His missions are twofold. He's doing it with each and every one of us now. He doesn't need us. I've said this many times. He doesn't need us. Why are we here? He just proved it. 600,000 people of a pagan nation that stands against everything about him. Gone. Just like that. And he uses me to go and tell people? Wow. I kind of want him to rethink his choice sometimes, right? Because I fail. Jonah failed. That shows God's power even more when he uses a broken vessel to accomplish mighty works. That's the point. It glorifies God even more to do amazing things through a broken people. He didn't, need, didn't really need Jonah. Jonah was reluctant. He was weak. In his flesh and anger towards the Ninevites. But 600,000 souls were changed because he went. Pretty cool. Point three. God's grace and mercy has no limits. I should just say amen right there and be done. Verse 10. God saw that the works that they turned from their evil and God repented of that evil and He said that He would do unto them and He did it not. God didn't change His ultimate intention toward the Ninevites. Jonah knew he was, you know, there was that opportunity that he was going to save them anyways. That's why he didn't want to go. God didn't change his intention. Rather, they changed their attitude towards him. That was the point. On the basis of that change, God could deal with them in grace rather than in the judgment that their failure to repent would have deemed necessary. Amen? That's what we got. That's why we're able to be here. He gave us Mercy and grace than what we deserve. I didn't use the word enemies, but we, when we are. Before we were the children of the Lord, we were His enemy. And He showed grace and mercy to His enemies. He saw the sincerity of their repentance. And He changed His mind about destroying them. Yeah, but they changed their attitudes towards Him. One of the strong lessons is that Jew nor Greek. Right? See that? Jew nor Greek. We're all loved and all saved and all can be saved by God if we truly repent. God loves us all the same. Why do you think in, in Romans Road it says confess with your mouth? Think about that. Think about that for a second as I'm starting to wrap it up. Why worry about actually confessing with our mouth? What does that represent? Step on some toes. How many of you struggle saying the word, I'm sorry? Or I was wrong? Ooh, that's always a hard one, right? I'm sorry, I was wrong. Sorry, honey, that was my fault. Oh, right? That shows true humiliation. Real repentance. My bad. I'm really sorry about that. If that comes out of your mouth and you're able to say that, that's why God calls us to repent through your mouth. 
That's why it's in the Romans. It shows what's inside the heart because nobody else can see that. He called them to repent with their mouths. It showed the humiliation. That's what He wants us to do when He calls us to confess with thy mouth. Show what's really changed in your heart. God's grace and mercy has no limits. He brought an entire city to their knees through their heart of repentance. That would have took a large army to take out the Assyrian nation. That Assyrian city of 600,000 people. Nobody was killed. But he had them all bound. It's incredible. Not a single spear, bow, arrow, whatever they used back then, stone, slings. Not one cart with a horse-drawn warrior on it needed. But the lay of the land and its power was changed forever. God showed He will go deep to reach somebody. Even using the depths and the coldness of a sea to reach a reluctant prophet. He used the belly of a whale to bring Jonah around. A couple questions to get us thinking here on the practical piece. What is your Nineveh? What's your Nineveh? I mean, we can read this really cool story and I can tell you all these neat little things I learned, but what's the point? I'm big on this, I know that. What's the point? Another guy standing up here, da-da-da, the Charlie Brown, wah-wah-wah-wah-wah, right? I could do that, but what's the point? What's your Nineveh? Is it the group of soccer moms that stand around gossiping during the games? Kind of scared to go talk them. <laughs> They'd be scary to me anyways. Is that your Nineveh? How about your boss? A man who's so conceited that he's been removed from the sense of reality because he's right about everything. He wouldn't believe you even if you told him the office was on fire. Everybody vacates and he wouldn't leave until he actually saw the flames for himself. That's, is that your Nineveh? A guy who wouldn't even hear you even if you talked to him. So why bother, right? Being sarcastic there. How about the creepy single man that might live a house or two down from you and you wouldn't even let your kids go near his yard? That one gets me. Not that I have a creepy guy down the road, but I think about that, right? Like, would you go talk to him? I see people like that coming to my bank all the time. I was like, oh, I don't know if I would ever let my kids near somebody like that. You don't know. I mean, that's wrong for me to think that way, but I'm not going to lie. I struggle with that. But that's Nineveh. That's a soul. We're called to share the light of the Lord, the message. But that's our Nineveh. Maybe that's one of you. Maybe you can think of a different one that I didn't come up with. Another question. What does Jonah, the Ninevites, and King David all have in common? I said it already, but humility. Humility. We say it all the time. We hear the word says, God, David was a man after God's own heart. When I hear that, I immediately think to older David. David who allowed his 
title and his prestige conceded his mind, make him selfish to think he was above everybody, and he gave him to his flesh, and he took Bathsheba. But, let's think of a little bit before that. God chose David because when David, yeah, he might have fell to his flesh later, but David was truly humble when he was a kid. He found more comfort in with the flocks and the sheep and the herds than he did man. Yeah, when he rose to power, he got blinded a little bit. He's human. He gave into his flesh, he fell. But his heart, God knew, he was truly humble. He just made a mistake, like we all do. Satan fell because he wanted to be God. Man fell because of that same idea. Satan poisoned man and woman in the garden with that same thought. Did God really say not to do that? Same idea. Satan will do the same thing when he comes back again as the Antichrist, sets up his throne. He wants to be worshipped. That's his goal. He wants to be God. But catch this. But God, who is the most powerful, became man. He humbled himself as a man and died a lonely human death on the cross. Have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. You see that in Philippians. You know, man could help out God with our sanctification if we just actively became less. Less is more. Don't strive for greatness. Let the greatness that's already inside of you out. Because if you strive for greatness, that's on you. But if you let the greatness God put in you, it's about Him. Never really thought of it that way before. I challenge you to find ways this week to put others before yourself. Have that mind. Truly strive to have that mind. And I'm going to be real. Not your loved ones. That's easier. Well, sometimes that's easier. You got to find a stranger. You got to find a stranger. Do something to somebody you don't really know yet. That's my challenge. It is the season, right? Let's pray.